Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we compulsively read the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Novelizations are a medium in which to create an abridged version of a lengthy book for readers with short attention spans. Novelizations ask, what if not only abridged, but the facts and the names are wrong too? What if that madness? They are a means by which to radically reimagine literary classics as taking place in the present day, even if that mostly means inserting specifics like he shoved a bunch of craft singles in into his mouth, or he ran past Trump Tower. We are your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby. I'm Hannah Blackman. And I'm Andrew Marco. Great Expectations is a 1998 romantic drama film directed by Alfonso Cuaron. It stars Ethan Hawke, Gwyneth Paltrow, Robert De Niro, and Chris Cooper. Based on the 1861 Charles Dickens novel of the same name, loosely, though, Great Expectations follows Finnegan Bell, an impoverished fisherman who is engaged in a social flirtation with the rich, aging Miss Dinsmore, who seems to have mysterious designs upon Finn's relationship with her ward, Estella. As Finn and Estella's lives grow apart, they come to realize how much they view their sense of self in relationship to one another. Also unrelated, one time and then later a second time, an escaped convict yells at Finn a ton. The novelization Great Expectations was written by Deborah Cheel, quote, based on the novel by Charles Dickens, slash, based on the motion picture written by Mitch Glazer, end quote. This wording from the cover makes it sound like Dickens based his work off of Glazer's, which we stand. It was published in 1998 by 20th Century Fox Corporation through St. Martin's Paperbacks. Who is Deborah Cheel? Uh, it's kind of a hard question to answer because there is not a ton of information about this author and novelizationist online. However, she is a prolific novelizationist, having also written Mona Lisa Smile, Die Hard with a Vengeance, and Another 48 Hours. So she's really big on action sequels, it seems. Um, she also has a credit as an editor on uh, a an edition of Great Expectations, the actual Charles Dickens book. So I'm assuming that's how she got this job, was that they just called the editor from the most recent edition of Great Expectations, and they were like, you could probably do this, right? Our guest today is Liz Falstro, uh, a multidisciplinary talent based out of Chicago, Illinois. Uh, Liz, just opening up here, what is your relationship, if anything, to Great Expectations uh, and or Charles Dickens? <clears throat> so my relationship, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be here. And uh, we're excited to have you. It's been a while since I've read an adaptation. Um, I think the last one I read was when I was in like the fourth grade of like The Mummy Returns. Um, it was a while ago. But uh yeah, happy to be here. And my relationship with Charles Dickens um, is uh, twofold. Uh, first, first iteration was in high school. I tried to read David Copperfield, which is like famously one of his longest books because he was paid by the word. And um, it's also well known in my life as my least favorite book I've ever tried to read because um, I, I really, I really don't like his writing um <laughs> so uh so that that's a big um opinion coming from here um but uh that being said uh re i did start reading great expectations whenever you suggested doing this and uh it is a lot better 
I don't think he had the same um, money crunch he did before. Um, but I will say uh, Doctor Who is the other ex exposure that I have with Charles Dickens because they have a couple of episodes about him and his life um, and based on some of his works. So that is my background with this with this book and this man. Now, when you say you read Great Expectations, do you mean this book? So um, I, I started reading the actual book. Okay. On top of... <laughs> okay. Uh, um, yeah, and it's it's pretty good so far. Um, I'm into it. Uh, whereas David Copperfield was kind of, kind of boring. I mean, I'm going to get a lot of hate for this probably, but I really didn't like it. Not from me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I have never successfully read a Charles Dickens book because they are dense and boring and long. Like, my, in high school, my friends and I watched that Nicholas Nickleby movie, which is super cute. And I was like, I can read that book. It's huge. And I couldn't get in it at all. So I've read A Christmas Carol, which is like 100 pages. And otherwise, no Dickens over here. Um, yeah. Uh, can I confess? Uh, I did not read the book. Uh, I watched the movie at the request of Andrew. And okay, I watched I watched like two thirds of the movie because I'm sure we'll get into it. It's a it's a lot, and I read the Wikipedia for the last half. So I, there are a couple things I want to say about this episode, which is um, it's sort of an atypical one to begin with, because only Liz and I have read the novelization Great Expectations, which is understandable because I am um, well. I. Uh I got about halfway through the novelization. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> uh, sorry, it's just it's there's only so much you can read. I can't believe you this. weren't just gripped by it. Also, <laughs> while I did finish it, apparently the only one to finish it, I did finish it. No exaggeration, like seventy five seconds before opening the Zoom meeting. So, okay, but a little context on this episode. So apparently. One and a half of us out of four have read the book. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And also, none of us have a significant relationship to Dickens. Does this make for bad podcasting, you might ask? I say on the Dickens front, we uh, are doing a podcast about the novelizations of films. And so the relevant text, the relevant primary text, is the film itself, and the relevant secondary text is the novelization. So... For example, I did not read Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton when we did our Jurassic Park Junior novelization episode. And you had also never seen Jurassic Park, important oh, whoa, context. Whoa. And I also still have not, but I'll get around to it. And Jurassic Park is a novel? <laughs> it yes, is a Ju novel. Jurassic a Park novel is first. a novel. First? Yes, fa yeah. famously... Uh, Michael Crichton, I think, was going through sort of a fallow period in his career, and <laughs> and he his editor was like, "I need a, a really good idea because getting something made into a movie is the whole is the whole thing these days." And he said, "What if a theme park, but with dinosaurs?" And his editor said, "I can sell that to a studio right now." And he so, did. And then Michael Crichton wrote the book, and then the movie is based on the book. So technically, the book came first, but it was it always had movie pregnant inside it got it as a concept That's, so yes anywho back to great expectations but a um, similar journey of book to movie to book so uh liz did you watch I, the movie i did i watched the entire okay. movie start to finish 
Wait, I don't want to jump into the movie quite yet. Hold on okay. just a second. So first <laughs> I off, have I have so many things to say about the movie, and, and that's one of that's I one of the notes. things that. That's one of the things I want to touch on here, which is like, I think more so than other episodes, this will be a little movie heavy since, you know, a lot of us didn't read the book. Um, Also, it's just a very weird movie. Um, The other thing I wanted to say about reading these book to movie to book adaptations is I am losing respect for the original authors without having absorbed their work. (laughs) I think... I think of Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton as a shitty book because of the junior novelization I read. And I definitely thought a couple times during this book, wow, Charles Dickens ain't shit. (laughs) That seems unfair. I read the Wikipedia page of Charles Dickens's Great Expectations, uh, and I thought, gee, that sounds like a compelling story. Then I watched the movie this (laughs) afternoon while I was working and thought, this doesn't seem the same. It is so far removed. Was there a South Park episode based on Great Fe- Expectations sure. back in the 90s or something? I'm sure there was. Because I, I remember there being... Because all I knew about Great Expectations was the main character was named Pip. Okay. And this film throws that out the we're window like, right We're like, we're flying through. I want to get to the name thing. Hold on just a second. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry to be like megalomaniacing here. But like... <laughs> the, First off, can we just agree, before we jump into the movie or anything like that, that this is the most upsetting, weird novelization cover I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. Like, listener, if you have not seen this novelization, it is like just a, a, the, a top half of a nude Gwyneth Paltrow with the title Great Expectations. And then tiny, fucking tiny pictures of... <laughs> The most famous actors on Earth at the time, I assume. And a looming Ethan Hawke. Uh, wait. I mean, Ethan's always looming. I hadn't even <laughs> realized that was his face. Did and not s- like a motherfucking curtain. <laughs> this, and this is, the fa- this is her face, but the drawing of it that he drew that's like pairing him on this side. Do you see? Wow. I have no clue what you mean. <laughs> there, you can't see that there's... There's a woman in the background. Do you see? I see it. Okay, okay. So in the background of Gwyneth Paltrow's real face, there's a drawing face. Yes. I'm so glad this is a visual medium that we're recording. Yes, we should definitely. I'll I'll tweet out the the cover of this book when we post this episode. Um, Okay, but Andrew, sorry. I'm done silencing people. So let's talk about the name thing because it's weird as hell. So what is the character's name in the book? It's Pip, and I, I was speaking as I was watching this movie with a friend who had played Pip in an adaptation of this for the stage uh-huh. and was very confused by who this Finn was, and I was confused because I knew nothing of the book other than Pip. But they changed the character, and indeed the setting and the time period, obviously, we'll get into that. Uh, his name is Finn, and he's not from Dickensian London, as I assume he is in the original. He's from Florida. Yes, Sarasota, Florida. 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 Oh, Sarasota specifically. Sarasota, yes. Okay, so he goes from Pip to Finn, and would it make you fully dissociate and murder your family to hear that in the novelization his name is Jimmy? (laughs) (laughs) No. Does he have a nickname at least? Yes, it's Bubba. He's called Bubba for a second in like, 
the first three pages. So in the rest of the book, he's referred to as Jimmy the whole time. Jimmy or I, James. I, I don't think his name is even canonically Finn in the book. I think it just is Jimmy. Like, the- So do we have to assume that this was like an early draft of the screenplay and Karan showed up on set and said, no, it has to be Finn. Yes, Finn has to be his. I uh, and it would be it it would be so understandable if he showed up and he said, "This is a work by Charles Goddamn Dickens. Use the real name." But instead, he said, "I don't like this fake name. Use this other fake name." Mm-hmm. I read on IMDb trivia, so take it with a grain of salt, that <laughs> Finn is that name is Ethan Hawke's dog. So I think they got to set and someone said, wait a second, this is a Charles Dickens novel. If you're not going to use the name, you have to at least use a weird name. He's known for his funny names. And Ethan Hawke went, uh, my dog's name is Finn. <laughs> Let's do that. Which is... That sounds very Ethan Hawke. Uh, Andrew, I I don't want to throw anything on you, but I feel like you're a bit of an Ethan Hawke guy. Yeah, I, I like him. He's, uh, he's a top two actor for me. So where are we? It's the other in one's the Robert Pattinson. Kind of. That's probably it. Yeah, <laughs> he was not available at the time. But where where are we in Ethan Hawke? Because I haven't seen Reality Bites. I haven't seen any of the Sunset films. Let me let but me. I feel like he's very much in that mode. Let me pull it up so I don't get it like horrifically wrong. Although that would be a fun bit if I was just like. Uh, this was Ethan Hawke's first film. About, you know, I was fucking and making Hannah, shit up. While he's looking that up, I feel like you're a Hank Azaria head. So where are we in the career of Hank Azaria? You've got me pinned wrong, brother. I think this is the same year as Godzilla, so it's really his peak as a performer. It is a very subdued Hank Azaria performance. I will say, this is the movie Alfonso Cuarón directed directly after A Little Princess, which I is a okay, movie okay, I love. Okay, okay, so this is that's what. That's what I wanted to pin on is... It has that same energy in the beginning, and then that kind of just floats away into something I didn't like anymore. Right. Well, this is where I want to kind of go into it for a second. So, you're right. So, this is directed by Alfonso Cuaron, obviously, who most people know from Roma or the third Harry Potter. But he made this between A Little Princess and Itumama Tambien. All I know about A Little Princess is that it's about children... And all I know about Itu Mama Tambien is that it's very horny. Very horny. <laughs> and I feel like this is very much a transitional film because as I texted Andrew while watching this movie, did those children just French kiss while drinking from a water fountain? Yes, it okay. was disgusting and very disturbing. <laughs> and then later Gwyneth does it to him on the street without warning, yes. which was also like, disgusting. I believe in, in like York. Washington Square in Park of all places. Can like, you imagine gross. someone comes up to you in the streets of New York and licks your face and you don't know them? <laughs> I can't, Hannah. I can't <laughs> imagine <laughs> that happening. <laughs> um, I'm ready with my with my Ethan Hawke talk. <laughs> okay. I mean, all this, this, I mean, <laughs> this is going to be the episode. I think this of all her episodes is going to go all over the place. There will be no rhyme or reason. We're just going to, so listeners, you know, be warned. We're going to go out there with lots of things. But yeah, I, I want to get back to the, is this book disturbingly weird horny? But Andrew, please go on with some Ethan Hawke. Sure. Right now, so basically, I mean, this isn't going to be super deep dive, but basically Ethan Hawke, right? He comes to prominence at, prominence as kind of like, 
a pretty boy. He's got that Jake Gyllenhaal energy where you're like, we're watching him because he's hot, but also maybe there's some talent there. But just like Gyllenhaal, right at first, it's not like super apparent that he's going to be one of the best actors of our generation. So in 94, he does Reality Bites, which is, you know, the Ben Stiller movie, which, you know, has its merits, but is very much him in that mode of like, he's playing like, you know, the cool young guy, uh, kind of, uh, kind of living his best life. He does, uh, Before Sunrise in 95, which I think is, while in my opinion being the least impressive of his performances, uh, out of that trilogy, it at least is a moment where we go, oh, Ethan Hawke, maybe there's some pathos there, maybe... Uh, you know, because it's a transition moment. It's like he's playing a hunk, but then he's also kind of showing that there's substance under under the hunkiness. Calling um, him a hunk is not act, act. That's you can't. That's not right. You can't say that. That's not right. He's not, he's not a hunk. He's, he's not. Not at really, all. He's cute. Not. Hannah, but he's not a hunk. Do not yuck his yum. Look, I'm, no, no, no. I'm, I'm very pro no, no, Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke is hot, but he's not a hunk. I this is valuable. To be correct. He's this like one va- of those like people that you are like, oh, yeah, he's like a painter or a poet. He's kind of like edgy and kind of mysterious, and that's what makes him kind of hot. That's a hunk to me. Well, a hunk (laughs) is like a beefcake. And I think I would allow it if you wanted to call him a twunk. Okay, this guy is a dreamboat. Is that better? Yes. Okay, so this guy is a friggin' dreamboat, and he does before sunrise, and we go, I don't know, maybe the boat actually goes somewhere, you know? I get off a train Um, with him. Totally, totally. I get off a train, I'd, you know, run into a bookstore uh, nine years later, I'd whatever the third one's about. Um, So, ba-ba-ba-ba, yeah, so he does Reality Bites, and then basically the movie right before... um, the Great Expectations is Gattaca, the Andrew Nichols movie, which I stand by. I think, have you guys seen Gattaca? No, but I saw the host. <laughs> Don't not know. <laughs> I mean, the guy, a- Andrew Nichols wrote The Truman Show. So, like, he obviously has a wide range of sometimes he's great and sometimes he sucks. <laughs> so, anyway, um, but yeah, Gattaca's him going like full genre, right? Like he's playing uh, all these heady themes in this dystopian, and he's you know that that movie's all about like uh, uh, discrimination and bigotry, and even though they're all white, so that hasn't really aged super well. They're like feel bad for this white guy; he's different than the other white guys. Um, anywho, this movie arrives at a point where like we know we know Ethan Hawke has something. And so he seems to be a natural fit for uh, Dickens' adaptation. Now, did he end up being a good fit? I leave that up to you. Not having read Great Expectations and not having read the novelization, I did think he was a good fit for this character once the character is an adult and not like a tow-headed, weird teenager. <laughs> Correct, yes. <laughs> yeah. Is his, is his wig described in the book? <laughs> it isn't. But it should be. <laughs> so bad. But then he gets a haircut and he grows a little mustache. And I was like, there what, he is. What happened was they borrowed the, the wig they were using for Maggie while he was a kid. And they put it on his head. <laughs> I have lots of um, production issues with this movie. <laughs> I have to say, having read like essentially this entire book in like 36 hours, 
I feel as if the movie's been like erased from my memory. Like the the book now takes up too much headspace for me. And I when I was reading the book, I was like, was Maggie in the movie? Because I certainly don't remember her. Because the book just pushed most of the movie out of my head. Who was she played by? Um, she's played by actually a. She was recognizable by face, but she wasn't one that. Uh, Kim Dickens. Charles Dickens, hmm. great, great. great. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> if you saw her face, you'd be like, "Yeah, her." Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll Google her right now. Um, to answer your question, Hannah, I think it's just because Maggie's presence is uh, heavily felt in the beginning of the movie. So by the time I was towards the end of the book, I had like pushed the beginning of the movie out. If that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, Kim Dickinson. Oh, 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 sorry. <laughs> She's had work done because I recognize her f- as being from, sorry, <laughs> oh gosh, um, Deadwood, but she doesn't look anything like she did in the movie. Oh, wow. Uh, so I, let's I just, see. I'm just on a journey over here. Yeah. On a brief yeah, Google search, Joni she Stubbs. does look really different. She's Joni yeah. Stubbs. Well, so she's, she's good at being yeah. a scold. This is a strange cast. I mean, I was saying to Andrew, I'd never seen Anne Bancroft in anything but The Graduate. And here she is hamming it up in this movie. She was... So my understanding of that character from the general understanding of Great Expectations is that Miss Havisham, who's the character in Dickens's book, like lives in her wedding dress and in a perpetual yes. state of like grief over a wedding that never happened. Then Anne Brancroft shows up Kid- in like this cute, like Indian inspired pantsuit. Seems like she's living the best life in the world. And I was like, huh, I wonder, it doesn't really seem like the way that she like ruins this ward's life and their relationship to each other could possibly be happening because this woman's fine. Weird, but fine. Hannah, am I remembering correctly that in the movie, they do not tell us her backstory? There's some voiceover where Ethan Hawke says, like, she was a weird lady who nobody saw anymore. No, but we, in the book, okay, so yeah. I'm sorry, I know I'm steamrolling a little bit, but I am Please. the only one who read That's the book. That's not true. I read the beginning of the book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I want to hear about the book. I really do. No, so, the um, the in the book, uh, we get the whole backstory where she goes to, um, basically, Ethan Hawke, whatever his name is finn jimmy whatever yeah. jimmy in this case he um he's just uh had a you know a romantic evening with estella like as a young man and he goes to find her at um at the the mansion and discovers that she's gone and that she's left for school and in that scene in the book uh what's her name in the book and the movie dinsmore um she she Another tells big, him. why change the name? Right, okay, uh, this is what I'm getting at, which okay. is that she tells him the story of, <clears throat> I was very in love with someone once, we were going to get married right here, she's like standing like near the water, near the mansion, and she's like, that we're gonna get married right here, and I, I was left here, and, and, you know, now I basically have trained Estella to hurt men. And I had this moment, I mean, how do you even explain this? Where I thought, that can't be right. <laughs> because years ago, 
when I first got to Chicago and I, I was taking like a, a writing and acting class and we were doing these like little vignettes, there was a woman who had like a, a really tragic real life backstory. What's a real life backstory called? A past. Um, <laughs> so she had had this horrifically tragic past where like, I believe uh, like a husband of hers had like killed himself or something. It was never totally clear. Anyway, we're doing these like little vignettes that are based on real life and we're like all writing about our real traumas. And she pitches one that had Miss Havisham in the name. And she's like, what I'm going to do is have an audience member come down. Like I'm going to pick a woman, have her come down. I'm going to have her open her dating apps and I'm going to have her unmatch someone she's been talking to (laughs) because I want to train women to hurt men. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's a brilliant idea and uh the night of the show comes around and she takes like a young woman probably like 19 years old down from the the uh stands and she's like okay pull open your dating app you've been talking to this guy for four days uh and uh the woman goes wait hold up hold up hold up i'm not connecting <laughs> and and this woman running the the play was like what do you mean and she's like i don't have any service here and so she's like Oh, okay. And she pulls another woman down, and that woman goes, I also have Verizon. I don't have any service here. <laughs> and after she does this with like three different people, to the last person, she just goes, Ah. <laughs> Will you just hurt some man this week? <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, I get to this point in the book where Dinsmore is monologuing about training Estella to hurt men. And I'm like, that can't be true because I don't know what book that's from, but that's Miss Havisham. <laughs> I would bet I would bet my life on that. And that's where this all started unraveling for me, where I was like, I go on the Wikipedia page and I'm like, who the fuck is Pip? <laughs> <laughs> what, but I just don't understand why that's happening. Well, why that's is any of the name change then. happening? Well, is that his uncle Joe does not have his name changed. Neither does Estella. Like, in, do like, them any all version. or don't do them. Exactly. I find that, yeah, very confusing. Also, in the book, his aunt is his mom's sister, and in the movie, it's his sister. His aunt is his mom's sister, and his... No, really? The aunt, in the book, it's his aunt. In the movie, it's his older sister who's raising him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a difference. Okay, I still can't get over the fact that you described that high school scene as a romantic situation. I didn't like it. Because I've never seen so many Dutch angles in a scene in my life. That's and true. felt so uncomfortable. And I don't know what I'm supposed to feel. And again, I want to get back into this. Is the book so uncomfortably horny? The book is so horny. I mean, but but the thing is you can't see the people. So you like read the scene of two children French kissing and you're like, ah, true love. We've all been there. <laughs> and then you see it in the movie, and you're like, I'm, I'm like on a list. You know? <laughs> I felt like I was on a list even when they were 18. Yes, yeah, when they are older teenagers. Like, what the teenagers. hell is happening? That shot Who? of her skirt, did anybody yeah. else just, why? I no one needed it. And also, like, what's happening in that scene? It is not clear if they are boning or if he's you know, hand stuff, like, not, and she's, I don't know. And then she's like, bye, I'm out. Every single yeah. time. 
what a difficult. Yeah. Oh, this is the one when he's in the city and she she sort of pops no. in and out. No, this is when, no, this is when he's got his his Goodwill Hunting haircut. <laughs> oh yeah, they're supposed to go to that fancy dance and then she shows up and is like, I don't want to go to the dance. Take me back to your house and I don't know. We don't do stuff. Yeah. And he says, Why don't? Why didn't we ever do anything? And she's like, Didn't we? Like, okay, so the very first note I have about the movie is what was their bird budget and why were there so many birds all the time? Their house is covered in birds. Like, I don't know what they put in the water near him whenever he's like sketching in the very beginning, but there is an absurd amount of bird happening like frantically in the background. It was really disorienting for me. Bouncing off of that point, if I may speak to the quality of his art for a moment, his like childhood notebook of fish drawings that Bob De Niro shows up with at the end, those are yeah. beautiful, interesting little drawings. His right. portraits of Gwyneth Paltrow, I don't think are good. No. They're <laughs> when he turns it around, I laugh. No, oh like, my God, it was atrocious. The kind of an interesting Egon Sheila thing. And then the faces... I can't say are good. I don't think it's good art. Do you think it was like a Tom Cruise thing where he wouldn't let anybody do his insert shots? He was like, it has to be my hands. I wonder. <laughs> there has to be an answer to this. Yeah, I was going to say, if we're comparing this to 97's Titanic nude scene where James Cameron drew the drawings, do you think Alfonso Cuaron drew these drawings? Um, I think they they listed who actually did all of the artwork at the end of the movie. Oh. Like it was commissioned or I just remember someone's name. grandson, right? It is Francesco Clemente, Italian Clemente. painter. The actor yeah. sat for him in private. It, Wikipedia says that a gallery of some of the paintings is available for viewing on Fox's website, but I don't know if that's true anymore. What a what an unfortunate <laughs> way to go about it where you're like, all right, here's the deal. Uh, I don't know if you know Ethan Hawke, but you have to get naked in front of him for this shoot's probably going to be a couple hours. So I hope that's okay. He's a pretty chill guy. Also, unrelated, you got to do it again for some painter we hired. Francesco Clemente, who was born in 1952, so was like in his 40s in 1998. And looks like kind of a, not like if I wouldn't want to hang out naked around him. No offense to him. Yeah, for the listeners, uh, Hannah was making a De Niro <laughs> there. I, <laughs> can we, can we, speaking of which, can we just talk about the first, like, 90 seconds of the film? <laughs> which, yes. I, when I, when I booted up, so this is a rare case where I watch the movie first. I mean, usually I like to read the book and imagine what I imagine and then put the movie on and go... Oh my God, that's Ryan Gosling. I would never known. Um, but in this case, I was like, I, I want to get the story in my head and then sort of see how this book diverts from it. So I'm like, okay, it's a Charles Dickens adaptation. It's probably going to be some like love story or some story about class. I was right on both fronts. It's probably going to be a little slow for my taste because I'm like an action movie idiot, which I was also right about. But the beginning of this movie is batshit insane. <laughs> yes. For those who have not seen it, a Pretty little boy, an expertly casted young Ethan Hawke. I mean, that's Ethan Hawke. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really yeah. good. This, this movie's boyhood. That was really <laughs> Ethan Hawke. Um, so anyway, Ethan Hawke, as a child, 
is like hanging out around the ocean and he goes to look at the water and instead of his reflection bob de niro is right underneath the surface he jumps out grabs the little boy by the face front and back mouth and back of head Mm -hmm. and he goes be quiet be quiet be quiet do you have bolt cutters at home do you have bolt cutters at home do you know what (laughs) bolt cutters are and it's like at this point i was like all bets are off this is gonna be the most nuts movie ever and then it just it hits the brakes hard it feels like De Niro still in Frankenstein mode. Like, it's been four years and he hasn't shaken it off yet. <laughs> I think it's a compelling De Niro performance in the first 10 minutes of the movie. And this little boy is like, I will help him, even though he was clearly a dangerous convict. He's an escaped convict, yeah. And he's, yeah. like, making no... He's really not um, lying about that in, like, any capacity. He seems super dangerous. He's, like, trusting this little boy to, like, get all this stuff without saying anything, too. Like, I don't know. I I do want to mention, though, a difference between the book and the movie uh, was the the stuff that the kid brings back to him. Part of it was, like, you know, kids' food, like, craft singles and, like, a jar of chocolate and stuff like that. And I just like to imagine that that was actually originally in the screenplay, but Robert De Niro was just like, I ain't fucking doing that. I ain't gonna eat kids' food with my hands. I'm not gonna do it. But I really wish that we did have that scene of Robert De Niro just going to town on some chocolate sauce. I I just want to reanimate Charles Dickens so he can so he can read lines like... <laughs> The man stuffed the craft singles into his mouth. Or, well, I had a running list. Oh, at one point he goes, uh, the, at one point she, the author, goes, uh, the girls were dancing to an Aerosmith CD. As if to just be like, it's the present. And then... I was very jarred. There's a point in the movie when Gwyneth Paltrow said, this is the 80s. Yeah. Um, and I didn't need that. It really threw me for a loop. Yeah, it, it, it just really felt like that she kept trying to be like it's it's not the 1800s because at another point um aunt maggie when they first get money from uh the dinsmores is like wow this is just like my favorite tv show lifestyles of the rich and famous (laughs) (laughs) it just feels to me like obviously the movie is set in the present you don't need to keep talking about it we all understand the idea of a modern day adaptation also, it just peaks at craft singles on, like, page four, so. Also, also the first line that, that the uh, what's-her-face character has, the little girl has, is, you smell like horse shit, which I'm really sad wasn't in the movie. Um, she just kind of appears and then disappears in the movie, mm-hmm. but in the book, she actually has that line, and I was like, okay, so they're going to make her, like, a dick. Like, she's going to she says real bad. She- and she says, shower next time. Shower next time. She is, as he notes, a snob. But a very pretty one. I fear that th- uh, for anyone who has not watched the movie or read the book, this is a basically incomprehensible podcast, which is fine. <laughs> um, but maybe we should just sum up exactly what the plot of this is, which I know I sort of, or you sort of did up top, Hannah, but... Uh, basically, the Robert De Niro character leaping out of the water is an escaped convict uh, who he like terrifies Ethan Hawke into trying to help him uh, stay on the lam, and then 
has to essentially run away when a Coast Guard boat shows up. And then, unrelated, totally unrelated, the rest of the book is about how uh, Ethan Hawke is being invited over to, like, a rich family's house, and he's kind of falling in love with the daughter that's the same age. And seemingly, for the entire movie and book, these two things aren't related. And ultimately... They aren't related. They are related. No, they are not. (laughs) Well, here's what I would argue. I'm going to call this main character Pip because the book-to-movie name is too confusing for me. Mm -hmm. Pip does a kindness to this convict. And the Estella and her family are never kind to him, but he wants to be like them anyway. And he eventually comes into money that he thinks is from them, that he thinks is a kindness, that he can go pursue his dreams. So he goes and does that. And in doing so, he shuns the parts of himself that are nice and kind, his family, his past, etc. And then he learns, A, Estella is indeed a cold bitch. The Miss Havisham character had nothing to do with it and does not like him. And in fact, all of his good fortune comes from the one time he was kind because the convict is the one who's been sending him money. Oh my God, I just realized something, which is... (laughs) Yes? This is the same Ethan Hawke arc as Training Day. (laughs) I've never seen Training Day, is it really? This is a huge Training Day spoiler. (laughs) (laughs) In Training Day, he is uh, permissive towards all of this horrific stuff that Denzel Washington is doing throughout the movie. And then at the end, Denzel Washington basically sets him up to be executed, like in a bathtub. And the he like saved someone from being sexually assaulted in like, you know, twenty minutes into the movie, and it turns out that his the person executing him is like that woman's brother. And so his like one good deed in the movie saves his life. Well that's straight out of Dickens, I guess. That's straight out of Dickens. <laughs> At this point, I wouldn't be surprised if I went on the Training Day Wikipedia page and it was like Anton Fuqua adep- adapted this from Great Expectations, changing all names. Instead <laughs> of Estella, it's Denzel Washington. I buy it. Well, now I got to know what Ethan Hawke's name is in Training Day to see if it's Jimmy or Finn or Pip or any of those. I think it's Will Day. Um, no, I just made that up. <laughs> it took me a minute, but I got it. <laughs> um, there is something. Uh, your point, Hannah, about them being related—the the convict and the um, and the rest of the plot—that is something. And I have a passage about that, and I'm gonna try to find it. I'm not I have saying the that page. it's a tight connection, but it's like a thematic yeah. arc that you go on. Mm-hmm. Oh, here we go. I, okay, so Deborah Cheel, I think, does a lot of legwork to try to connect these two things that basically aren't are are at least not causally connected, right? Mm. So the first time that Jimmy is hanging out with Estella, um she's like being all cruel to him and uh the book says Jimmy took a deep breath and thought about how he'd lied to the police to save the convict. He'd seen from the convict's eyes that the man had appreciated his courage. He drew on that courage now as he knocked on the door. It's like I think knocking on the door in that case, he's already hanging out with Estella and they're they're going to see the, the aunt. Um, she's doing but her best. She's, yeah, Deborah's doing a lot of work to be like, 
I know that the movie doesn't do a good job of tying these together, but this did actually inform his actions through his entire life. I respect that. And even at the end, when the convict shows back up, and I was like, oh, you did a painting of me. I guess you've been thinking about me. That's nice. I wish there were more paintings of him throughout the movie, (laughs) which would be enough for me to go, oh, that guy's still on his mind as he grows into an adult. Right. Right. One thing I did want to bring up is that very strange strange transitional moment where he's flying the airplane on the subway as like a 30 something though honestly if you've ever been to new york it's not really far from what you might see but like and also the guy that's just like on the phone like oh fuck fuck you like fucking fuck you (laughs) his um his loft that he's like given is in tribeca and I wrote twice in the book because I'm an idiot. I realized after I wrote it the second time, I'd already written it down, which is I wrote twice, Tribeca, Robert De Niro. <laughs> <laughs> you think that's how they got him in the movie? I was They're like, hey, Bob, we're sitting down the street. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought they were like, hey, this is an interesting little nod to the fact that I wrote this based on a movie that has Robert De Niro in it, you know? Because of that company he has. I'm going to get real English teachery here for a second, mm-hmm. uh, as I am an educator. So, what are the great expectations? This is in the book, and I wish I had written down the page. But um, according to Deborah Cheel, they are the expectations that the masses have placed on him for his art show. Now, even even with that explicitly said, there's definitely other meanings. But what is... Because is Pip an artist in Great Expectations? Liz, you've at least... And Hannah, you've delved into this a little bit. What is... Does he have any sort of artistic inclination in the Dickens original? You know, I, I don't... I don't think, think so. so. I think, I think he's it's... An, I think he's an Instagram influencer. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he was so ahead of his time. Um, Ooh, I don't think he was. I think he was just sort of a, he just kind of became a ward, you know, as one does. Yeah, because as you said, Andrew, early on, you're like, it's Dickens. It's going to be about love and class and British things. So is it like class expectations? Like I... It's again. It's one of those titles where you hear it and you're like, "Okay, War and Peace, Great Expectations." Like, what am, what am I getting in for? And I feel like watching the movie, I was like, "I don't know what the expectations are and why are they so great." Maybe they're. Maybe it's talking about all of the characters. So maybe like you know the the expectations of Dinsmore have a sh- whatever her name is. The older woman was like to like hurt men through Gwyneth Paltrow. Which, I mean, Gwyneth Paltrow could probably do that on her own. But, um, but, so she had these expectations, and then by the end of the movie, she sort of think, she was sort of luring him into this life of pursuing this person who would never be with him, and she kind of sees that he always thought that she was trying to set him up to succeed, and instead she was actually setting him up to fail for her own sort of pleasure, um, and is sort of left in pieces about it, right? And then maybe he never he never put any expectations on the you know Robert De Niro character to ever come back in his life, and yet was rewarded 
for this single moment of kindness in this man's life. And uh, he wasn't expecting that, you know. So it's like that idea of just because there is some it feels like there's some sort of transaction doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get something. But sometimes just by being good, you will receive a lot back in the long run. I don't know. I'm really just, I'm trying to make it deeper than it is probably. But I I, I would assume that with a guy like Dickens and the way that he writes, all of the characters have their own expectations. Like um, the debutante has her this idea of what her life should be marrying this rich guy and traveling the world and speaking however many languages and you know but i don't think she ever really develops a personality of her own like throughout the entire thing so it's kind of i don't know it's it's kind it's a little rushed like, I don't know. I feel like they could have done a little, like, a little bit more connecting, especially with that character, because I feel like they almost made her too mysterious. I don't know. Dinsmore or Estella? Estella. Yeah. I, I, the, the point that I said I was going to say later fits perfectly here, which is, I think this is, like, very sexist piece of work. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's... So just running through the characters, the entire, the female characters, the entire characterization of Maggie is horrendous. It's awful. It's like, especially in the book, like Debbie is just going in on Maggie. (laughs) It's like, uh, I'm sorry, Debbie, Debbie Cheel. I think she describes her voice as shrieking at one point. Um, yeah. Yeah, she she's she definitely just like plays up how annoying she is. And then the only characteristic that she has is that she sleeps around on her husband. We don't know basically anything else about her. That detail I'm pretty sure it's doesn't funny. feel like it made it into the movie. It she did, seemed though. like an okay like she's a little bit like we're poor, how nice to have money, hooray, like be good or else. But, like, I didn't get the sense that she was, like, sleeping around or being oh, abusive. Oh, she, she It's shown that she's sleeping yeah, around. Yeah, right in the beginning. That's what I get for working yeah, while it, I watch. I apologize. It Honestly, to me, it felt like, and maybe this is being in the Gwyneth Paltrow mode, it felt like an early Paul Thomas Anderson woman character to me. Like, I just felt like he doesn't, whoever made this movie did not know how to write women. Yeah. And just sort of, like... Was like, oh, there's the slut, and there's the the one who plays hard to get, like, and there's the crazy old lady. Like, he, he did not. Whoever wrote this did not give a lot of depth beyond that. And again, having not read the Dickens, I don't know enough about these characters to say if he's drawing from archetypes that were hundreds of years old at this point. But it just felt kind of like, yeah, everyone was sort of underwritten. You're right. That's a good point. Everyone. You're talking about Heart Eight, right? Yeah. That, that those these movies are like four years apart and they're both Gwyneth Paltrow playing like you know women sometimes they're not the best but we can't help but love them and playing like love <laughs> is this illogical thing and that's that's very like an unfortunate pattern for her to have fallen into for whatever three years I'm willing to put this one on Charles Dickens to be honest <laughs> <laughs> I'm willing to you know <laughs> I do think he is capable of writing complex female characters, 
but clearly that is not his interest in this story. No. And Estella is just like a thing for Pip to put his expectations upon. Like he loves her. He just expects that they'll, you know, if he can get, well, based on the movie or whatever, if he can get the amount of wealth and societal connections that she wants, then everything will, she'll love him. And like, she's incapable of loving him. Um, let me clarify that Gwyneth Paltrow being cast in two unfortunate roles in a short period of time is the result of sexism in the industry. I'm not saying this dumb broad kept choosing these roles. Well, <laughs> no comment. Whoa! So, <laughs> so, hey, let's leave goop out of this. Uh, but, so, for anyone who's read Dickens, like, does he write strong female characters because you think david copperfield did he also do nicholas nickleby you know scrooge like i think of the men even tiny tim and all those characters like is dickens an author who was interested at all in writing women that were fleshed out or is that just what he was doing at the time he was writing and people have adapted it as such see i'm thinking of tale of two cities which is another Dickens that I've read oh, because I it's short. Me too, also because it's good. It's a very compelling book. But the the main woman in that, who is basically an evil shrew, who's like, let's kill people, um, is, I think, a very compelling, interesting character. Maybe accidentally, but... Mm-hmm. So, musical theater person... So Charles Dickens wrote Oliver Twist, which is what Oliver is based oh, off of. Oh, of course, Nancy. Nancy. Yeah. Um, also, the family that takes him in, I can't remember. I can never remember their names. Um, but that was a co-written novel with Mark Fitzgibbons. So hmm. perhaps he had a little bit of influence from from that fellow. But interesting. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, all this talk of intersectionality and feminism and women characters is great and all, but I know Hannah really wants to get to the meat of this film, which is, of course, Chris Cooper. Oh. He's great. <laughs> He's so good. What a I, Oh, boy, what a lovely man who shows up. He's like a scraggly fisherman man. He's very nice to children. He's very loving and supportive. And even when... Ethan Hawke is very rude to him at the art show. He's still like, I get it. Don't worry about it. Love you. Support you. Just like, what what a... mm. Yeah, I mean, you talked about how Robert De Niro, who made nine films between this, uh, Frankenstein and this, many of which are some of his all-time greats, we're talking about Chris Cooper's getting into the zone in this movie that he stays in for like four years until adaptation. Yeah, I mean... proto adaptation but like nice you know it's a really good movie I mean, that's his whole thing yes what? is adaptation <laughs> that movie rips if, if great expectations had one moment as good as the part in adaptation where they make the dial tone together it would be a five-star movie <laughs> like i mean just that scene of chris cooper talking about you know, flowers or whatever the hell in the truck is like, God, that's such a good movie. He's also like not so handsome that he like reads as a movie star. He's just like a nice guy that you could see in anywhere in your life. But he's any moment you could, but he is exactly. But also, (laughs) but also when he has to go kind of like, obviously he still has 
there's he still has redeeming qualities, but when he has to kind of go full heel in the Mister Rogers movie, it just also is believable. He's incredible. Is he perhaps also the villain in a Muppet movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, the villain in the Muppets. (laughs) Yeah, the villain in the Muppets. But also, like, is there anybody else I want to watch be mean to a Muppet? Not in this day and age. I think he's probably my second favorite human Muppet actor after Groden. Groden is doing full Muppet performance. Groden really special. Chris Chris Cooper is good in the Muppets, but he does not fall in love with a Muppet. And for that reason, I put him behind Groden. I think it's Groden and then Michael Caine. <laughs> and then maybe Tim Curry and then I'll put Chris Cooper. You know, like, it's a, level, right. it's a commitment Fair question. Enough. You know, not to make this just a Chris Cooper stand podcast. I think we're switching directions, obviously. <laughs> but in a four-year period, Chris Cooper played J.D. Salinger, did a voice in Cars 3, and then gave a lovable turn in Little Women. So, like, we stand. Yeah. And you cannot make me watch Cars 3. Sorry, Chris Cooper, you cannot do it. <laughs> His character name is Smokey. As a side note, I watched the first Cars, and the world building is so horrifying. Like, the world building in Great Expectations is a little confusing. The world building in Cars made me want to, like, scream for the rest of my life. I, I couldn't handle it. <laughs> it looks like he may have replaced... Paul Newman. So he's like Paul Newman's mentor? <laughs> yeah. Hmm. This is now a Cars 3 podcast. Um, it's Isn't that one about um, uh, environmentalism? <laughs> In a world where everybody's spewing exhaust? No, no. Yeah, it's it's the it's like the gas companies are fueling these cars that are like I don't know, it's like an alternative energy source but it actually makes cars blow up and it's it's to No, like... that's actually called the day after tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh I did see Cars 3. I've seen all 3. The more I hear about it, the more I think my my conclusion is correct, which is that it's scary and I don't like it. <laughs> Yeah, it is a little alarming to think about cars being sentient in, in general, you know. Like, I can accept car. I'm sorry to go off on this, but <laughs> I can accept cars being sentient to an extent, but then, like, they need to drink gasoline, and, like, they drive the... Like, there's just too many things where I'm like, yes. wait a second, so the animals are also cars? What there's... makes the cow cars different than the people cars? And when, like, Lightning McQueen gets towed... What's happening there to him? You know, like, it's just, like, too much to think about. They, like, went a I little guess too far, and I, like... The best-case scenario is it. that he's just getting, like... It, it's his version of, like, when Ed Norton's getting dragged at the end of Fight Club. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best-case scenario, and every other possibility is way more horrifying. There's also a part where they're, like, he doesn't have headlights because he's a racing car, and they're, like, we'll get you headlights. I'm, like, what is that? Like, plastic surgery? And like, his cheekbones? Like, what is it? You know, I know whoever downloaded this podcast looking to hear about either Charles Dickens' Great Expectations or Alfonso Cuarón's Great Expectations or the novelization of Great Expectations is really happy that the second half of this podcast <laughs> is just creaming into the cars for I am going to steer us I'm back. Done. I'm no sorry, pun I'm intended. Done. I no, 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 I I have more back. to say about great expectations, which Please. is 
the the thing I specifically want to open us up to talking about is um just the what is the purpose of this story? What is the purpose of this book? Because to me, the a story about class differences that involves two separate entities sort of serendipitously bestowing riches upon one impoverished kid is not true to life and like not profound and there's like no lessons to be learned from it and do you think this is the lesson of the dickens novel as well who i mean who's to say what you know of it (laughs) none of us will read it that's for sure as it stands which is I think kind of the purpose of this podcast is like, what, how, how is this story? uh, How is it having mutated through like several mediums? Right. That's like kind of what we, what we're getting at. Um, I don't think in the movie or in this novelization, there's anything to like really take and apply to your life because he is in a situation that is so specific I'm talking about the money here, like not the romance. He's in a situation that's so specific and involves so many coincidences. And is the, the the thing that makes it also totally unmoored from reality to me is that the twist at the end of the book that Lustig, the escaped convict, that he bankrolled the entire Ethan Hawke living in New York City and and the art show, and then he bought all his paintings. I That just doesn't seem like reality, that this, like, hobo man can do that. And I don't mean hobo man in a disparaging way towards the unhoused. I mean, Robert De Niro just has hobo man energy. <laughs> I mean, he does show up and he's like, hey, hey, can I use your phone? Do you mind if I just come in? And you're like, whoa, sir. Uh, okay. Yeah, Which I've yes. done to many an unhoused person. And I, you know, it's not the best. But you're trying to be polite. They're a person. And then totally. Says, just kidding. Remember me? And you're like, yikes. But that that just isn't true. <laughs> that like escaped convicts have that sort of money. And there's a line. Let me find my copy of Where the book. He I don't says, even know what every I did penny with it. I had, and I didn't. I made bullshit money. I made yes. I made bullshit money, and every penny I had went to you. And it's like, okay, so he saved up his entire life to afford like six months rent in this loft in new york because that would be his life savings and then the part where it just tips into insanity is that he bought every painting which he could not have done now is he doing this because he like is is grateful to the kid or is because he likes the art or both i think because he's grateful because he didn't see the art right he eventually sees the art and is like those are good but he, why does he give him money in the first place? Just because he's setting up that, hey, we want to get you money because you're an artist. But Ethan Hawke in the film clarifies, like, I haven't made art in years. So how does Robert De Niro know that he's an artist? He steals his little sketchbook when they're together and carries it with okay. him. And I think, like, no matter what, like, De Niro's like, here's a kid who had nothing to offer and gave me everything he had, essentially. Like, that's powerful stuff. That would stick. And he's a child. You know, that's a lot for a child to do. And De Niro, I get, is like a criminal, but he seems like an okay guy. It seems like in the... For a murderer. Yeah, it seems like in the Dickens' Great Expectations, there's a second convict who actually did all the bad stuff. 
and but our convict. Oh, so is, it's like Spider-Man okay. Three. Wait, he, yeah, he's absolved in the that's, in the Dickens. What it sounds like from the Wikipedia page. That's in that case. Uh, Quaron's take on this is is subversive, and I love it. <laughs> well, it's the idea that the expect his expectations were to live a life of crime because of the people that he was interconnected with. So Robert De Niro's gang friends. I'm just thinking about this now because it's all making sense because of actually um, the uh, Into the Spider Verse movie. They they use <laughs> they actually use great expectations as a symbol throughout that movie and with his. If any of you, spoilers for Spider-Verse, um, his uncle ends up being the bad guy, but his uncle was only doing it to make money so that he could help out his nephew and these people who are much worse than him were the ones. And the only time he wasn't able to like do what the bad people said was with his nephew. And that's when he gets he gets got. So but I, I don't remember how Great Expectation plays into that. So the it's, this, it's the idea that there are other forces causing this man to be a criminal. Like he's involved with a gang. He's involved in something that's keeping him in that gotcha. world instead of just letting him, you know, start a whole new life after right. being a convict. Yeah. I, I don't have issue, an issue with the theme. I think it's a cool theme. He did a nice thing. Robert De Niro... Never forgot the nice thing. That's awesome. I have issues with his cash flow. <laughs> <laughs> How did he afford this? It's insane. And um, let me let me think about. It does this. feel I'm like, like bankrolling a gallery show is like a big leap, as opposed to like it's 1840 and you're like sending a child to like school. Doesn't seem like the same equivalent requirement to me. But maybe I am wrong. Wait, walk me through that point one more time. That, like, my understanding of, like, you're going to pay to go to New York and pay for rent. You have to essentially rent a gallery space so that he can have his big show. And then you're going to buy all his paintings and then whatever. That's a lot of cash as opposed to, like, it's 1840 and you want to send an orphaned boy to school. And maybe that costs, oh, hello, sorry, cat. <laughs> maybe that costs, like, a pound a month, you know? Yes. Like, that feels more, like, in the... From Dickens, yeah. maybe it wasn't so outlandish. I mean, I was going to say that, you know, I don't know the difference between Dickensian London and Giuliani, New York, but <laughs> I assume it was about the same currency exchange. I, I was going to say, I, I don't mean to be getting so cinema sinsy on us here. Yeah. <laughs> like, I know I'm I know I'm getting a little to that. It just feels so unrealistic. I Hannah, that's a great point about the, the it being displaced in time. I, I think another bit of evidence that they just didn't know how to place it in the present day, is when De Niro shows up at the end of the movie, he's like, remember me? The escaped convict. And Ethan Hawke's like, yep, you got caught. I remember that actually really well. And De Niro goes, yeah, but I got out again. <laughs> and that, that to me feels very 1800s. Apparently you know? in the Dickens, he goes to Australia and in Australia, you could work until you were free. And then you... Oh. So he doesn't escape again. He just, well, like, is in Australia and then comes back. Him or, escaping or again in the 1800s feels a little more realistic to me. I mean, at the end, I'm just spoiling. I'm just spoiling, like, thrillers now. But at the end of... 
at the end of the 310 to Yuma remake, when Russell Crowe is like, why are you taking me to prison? I've escaped from this prison four times. I believe him because I think the prison's probably made of wood or something. <laughs> I think that's true. It's, it's 1820. <laughs> I also think that there is a point in Great Expectations, the movie, where it just sort of starts to fall apart. And suddenly, like, everything feels outlandish and silly. The characters feel, like, big and bizarre. Like, Miss Havisham, like, running down the stairs and yelling, like, I've made a mistake or whatever. Yes. Or I regret it. Like, I was like, this is crazy. Like, we've crossed the threshold. And I think the threshold is Ethan Hawke, like, throwing rocks at Gwen's window and being like, everything special about me is you. And I was like, no. That's not good. This is bad. Kind of tuned that part out. And then this Dickens guy just wanted the book to be done. Everything after that is like, then like Miss Dinsmore, whatever, has her like, it was me all along. I trained her to be terrible. And then De Niro shows back up, and then he goes to Paris, and you're just like, good God, wrap it up. In his arms, he dies in his arms on the train. Yeah, and I thought that was kind of beautiful. It is a little. It has real big collateral energy. I did not finish the film or the book. Who dies in whose arms? De Niro, De Niro. Gets stabbed by a guy. Dies of. Okay, someone needs to explain this for me. So Bobby De Niro shows up and he's like, "Some guys are following me. Can I come into your apartment? Do you remember me? It's the convict. I'm your benefactor." And Ethan Hawke's like, "Please leave me alone." Then he escorts him out down the fire escape and is like, I'll walk you to the subway. I'm a nice young man. They get on because the subway Because De Niro's platform. still being pursued by people. Yes. Right, because he's a criminal. What did De Niro do? He murdered someone, He like right? murdered a crime boss, and now the other crime people oh, are Oh, okay. Him. I watched yeah. this movie three hours ago, and that's why I remember this. I watched this movie two days ago, and honestly, I don't it's remember So much of it has fallen out of my head. I won't remember. I just remember today. the French kissing children. The, that should not be the image I'm remembering two days I, later. Man, I don't know. that The fact that they couldn't kiss without water was actually pretty disturbing to me. If you notice, the part where he goes into the restaurant to get her, he like dances with her and then like takes her outside to kiss, kiss her. And it's raining. Yeah. Like there's no, it's not logic. It's not logic that went Did into this. Did they have a condition? Thing. I think might have maybe maybe one of them had dry lips maybe like there was just like <laughs> some one of them of... is too wet of a kisser and they're like if there's already water it'll be fine <laughs> yeah I guess I didn't read the Wikipedia well at all can someone explain to me uh, the last half of this book after she decides to marry for Hank Zaria I mean that's not half I feel like that's the last 50 pages or something yeah I, okay that's well, very late in the story so Basically, after she agrees to marry Hank Azaria, I forget. Liz, go. After she agrees to marry Frank Azaria, she like... (laughs) He like... Okay, so this part is actually kind of confusing in the movie because clearly Ethan Hawke is like trying to be a big... Like trying to act like a big Mr. Big Pants and like go around and and be like, look at me, I'm rich, I'm, I'm famous now, love me. And she's like, well, great, cool, that's fine. Um, this guy's asking me to marry him. Should I? And he's like, yeah, you guys are great together, but love me. And it's like, okay, wait, no, why didn't you just tell her? Okay, fine, drama. And then, you know, finally he goes and he interrupts. Well, no, they come to his art exhibit thing. They don't. Well, they he do. He meets them at a different leave. party. 
I think. And they, she shows up and Hank Azaria is like, we have to leave right now. And they do. That's and right. And Ethan Hawke's like, she wants me to stop her. Yes. So I'm going yeah. to, and then he goes and busts oh. up their dinner and they kiss in the rain. Oh, can we, before we go to the rain part though, there was this very like jarring opera singer during that party. Oh my God, yes. Oh. kept singing. <laughs> she kept singing at the most inopportune <laughs> moments, like directly into There's their faces. There's a moment where Ethan Hawke's face is like, what the fuck? It was, uh, that was, yeah, pretty comedic for me. Um. But yeah, no. He, so so anyway, so she then he, she's like, oh, we're getting married, and blah. and then they have like one night of passion, which is really aggressive, and then she like leaves in the morning, kind of cold like, and then does she's like, I have to go back to Florida, and he says, you'll be back for my show, right? And she's like, of course, right. and then she doesn't come back for the show. She does not, and he's also like embarrassed of his uncle who shows up, and so he mm. leaves his party his gallery opening and he goes how do you smoke a swordfish uh what a good dad (laughs) he's such a jerk to uncle joe at the the, jerk that's a rough scene because he shows up in like a really old-fashioned tuxedo and he's clearly trying to like be part of the scene he's so proud he's like he's always been such a talented artist he's telling all these proud stories and ethan hawk's like shut up shut up i told everyone you were dead and literally they're not even blood relatives like that's no. just her, his sister's BF. Like, what a guy! What a guy! Also, big difference from the book, Andrew. That first chapter. Of oh the my book God! Okay, is not in the movie at all. <laughs> oh my God! Liz, if you want to take this, go ahead. Okay, so it just starts <laughs> with him like drunkenly walking as an adult. the streets of New York as yeah. an adult, not as a ten-year-old child. This is Jimmy slash Finn slash Pip. Yes, this is well James. I guess he would be at this point, but anyway, because when he gets older, anyway. Um, but <laughs> yeah, so he's just like stumbling along these like he's like looking out at the what. Some river, Hudson. I don't know. And whatever's in New York, <laughs> you guys. Whatever's know. there, you, you guys, guys know, know the one or two. I don't know how many there are. There's probably the New York two. River. Obviously, I, I lived there for a year. It wasn't enough to know both rivers. Um, but all right, just say it's like Michigan. It's like Michigan. It was He's like looking Michigan. at some body of water in America, and he, uh, suddenly he and very specifically they describe it this way in the book. Actually, I kind of want to find they 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 say. Don't move, a voice whispered hoarsely. Jimmy smiled. Somewhere in his rum-soaked mind, he registered awareness that he could be in danger, that someone might be pointing a gun at him, but he didn't really care. The threat of trouble was a welcome diversion from his more immediate concerns. When he opened his eyes, a pimply-faced Latino kid was glaring at him, and a gun was poking into his stomach. What's so funny, the kid demanded. And so he gets mugged by this kid. Uh, Well, sort of, but... he doesn't, this this feels like a scene from Death Wish. <laughs> <laughs> he, he gets mugged by this kid, and there's like a line in it where he's like, oh, I felt bad for him because I... Oh, no, what happens is he gets mugged. Then he like mugs the kid back. Yes. He basically oh. surprises him and like beats Surprise. him up a little bit. And then he goes, give me my wallet back. Give me my cash back. And then he's like, hey, and give me that chain. And the kid's like, he's like wearing around his neck. And the kid's like... No, like, I'm mugging you. What are you talking about? He's like, no, I'm, now you're in danger. Give me that chain. And the kid goes, it says Raphael on it. (laughs) Yeah. 
and he and goes, like, give it, give it to me anyway. And then he goes, are you Raphael? And the kid goes, why else would I be wearing it? <laughs> yeah. I wish that was in the movie. Well, also, now that we're talking about this part of the book, something they didn't really talk about in the movie at all was how, like, racist the girl character is. Oh, yeah. Did you she, pick it, up on in the book? She was they, like, you aren't Cuban, are you? Aren't you? And Cuban, like, are you? Oh my god! <laughs> like, and then he was like, he I'm not going to tell her about my best friend who's Cuban, and we never see his best friend in the movie. Like, no, no, there's no reason for this to be mentioned. Like, there's the like second she said she's like a pretty bad person, and yet they yeah. end up together. So, yeah. Okay, hold that thought for just a second. So, in the opening scene, the thing. The first time I'm like, oh, Deborah's really trying to do something with this book is when uh, Jimmy gets the gets the jump on this kid who's trying to rob him or gets the drop. I, I know lingo. Um, he uh, he thinks like, oh, this kid was scared. I, too, had a scare put into me by a random man once. And I, it just made me think like, oh, she's really trying to tie everything together here. But if that happened to me, I would not spend my whole life thinking, wow, that escaped convict really had a lasting effect on me. I would just be like, I hate him. I'm scared. (laughs) Um, But anywho, going back to just talking about Estella. Yeah, I think this book's idea of and this movie's idea of romance is just super, super fucked. I, I mostly for the reason that. The idea that, like, you can love someone or be in love with someone who basically doesn't reciprocate it seems crazy toxic to me. And then at the end, I mean, I have a problem with, like, it doesn't, she doesn't grow at all to then be like, yeah, I think I do want to be with you. Like, at the end, she's just sort of like, well, my husband is gone. In the movie, she's divorced. And she's like, I have this kid and... You're nice. So, like, I don't get any sense that she has come around to loving him or, like, recognized his good qualities at all. She's, like, a reward, but she sucks. Definitely. And I'm not speaking of the actual actors here, but I will say that, like, well, we got to agree that she's at least teasing him, right? It's not fully unreciprocated. There's, like, moments where she's like, hey, you kind of like me, right? And yeah. for that reason... If someone does that to you, I can understand being, like, in lust with the person or have feeling like you have, like, unrequited, you know, uh, emotional or sexual feelings. The thing that really bothers me is that she's so obviously using him as a diversion and a toy, and throughout the whole book it's characterized as, and he deeply loved her. And I just, I don't see it. I don't know. And it's the idea that he never sought out any other relationship. Yeah. Yeah. If he well, had like a bunch of flings oh. that didn't mean anything and then they found each other again and he was like, ah, yes. Well, that the lady was, in it, his apart in the Tribeca place, the lady that came over to look at his art, were they not like a thing? That reporter? Was that a reporter? Yeah. I don't Sorry, think I, I also was kind of working during this too, so I just in the, I don't in know the, how how much of it has stuck. Like I don't understand this. In the movie, it's kind of there. In the book, he's legitimately like, "I could go to bed with her right now. Should I? I don't know." And then later, he runs into her at his opening, and he he thinks to himself, 
That's the reporter I almost slept with. And then she propositions him at the opening. Oh. So it's like crazy explicit in the book. Interesting. Yeah, but but he doesn't, yeah. I mean, to Andrew's point, he doesn't pursue it. Well, you know, and old Debbie, she really does work really hard. She did say also in the book, she's like, old Debbie, she's working her hardest. She's doing the best she can to just make this all come together. And <laughs> um, and she really does. She's At one point, she mentions how he, he can see how unhappy she is and how angry she is and just wants to put a smile on her face and, like, just wants to be that person for her. Like, it's mentioned in the book, but it's never mentioned in the movie that that's what he wants to do. It's more just a very lustful, like, you're beautiful and I can't yeah. stop thinking about you that way rather than, like, this very good-hearted child who saved a convict is now seeing this very angry young woman and going, oh, I would like to lighten up your life, you know? And, yeah, I think Debbie does a little better of a job in the book making uh, Jimmy sympathetic that way. Like, I don't know, she tries, at least. I wonder if if Deborah Cheel's Die Hard with a Vengeance novelization does, like, somersaults to justify the inconsistencies in, like, Bruce Willis's performance throughout those movies. Because she seems, she seems all about finding, like, the through line for the character. Yeah. <laughs> well, add it to the list, Andrew. We'll read it for I wonder. Now. I wonder Let's if she's, it. like, if, if uh, McLean in that book is, like, I was really locked in in that Nakatomi Plaza thing. The stuff with the airport, I don't know. I wasn't feeling it. But this, but this now, now I'm back. <laughs> and I miss my wife. And now I miss this my is, wife. This is bad, but I keep, every time we say, this is bad, but every time I, keep, I hear we say old Debbie or Debbie, I keep thinking it's a character. And I think it speaks to how uh, unremarkable this adaptation was. But is Debbie our author? You mentioned her at the beginning. Is she still working? So she was really is hard to find living? information on. I mean, usually at the top, I have like all this info about the authors. And, you know, I even had that whole thing about how George Guy died in front of house guests. But um, I, it's really hard to find like any info about her personal life online. She also doesn't seem to be. I mean, hopefully we, we this might not come to pass, but hopefully we're having gavin g smith the author of bloodshot on next week and um if that happens like you know what i'm i want to ask him about like you know it, so many of these novelizationists seem to have their own hustle going on like their own fantasy series their own sci-fi right. series and then they just do a novelization whether it's like a paycheck or they actually really like that movie who knows but deborah Cheel is a totally different thing from what i can tell she seems to like have written a bunch of novelizations and that's kind of her thing. It looks like she also co-wrote a book about having curly hair. Nonfiction. A nonfiction book about curly hair. <laughs> you know, honestly, I think I'd rather read that than the novelization of Great Expectations. Yeah, I was about at some point, whatever, I, I think, having not read the Dickens, but I have, this movie feels like an interesting adaptation, whether or not it, it succeeds. And so going into this conversation, I was very curious about the novelization and thought this might be a really justified novelization. Like, it is different enough from the book source material to, like, garner its own literative interpretation. It sounds like that is not successful to the book we got, and I shouldn't read it, but... It's an interesting exercise. Yeah, I think Andrew, this might be 
to go off what Hannah's saying, uh, you usually say like, "Would you recommend?" Hey, you're getting ahead of ourselves here. You know, but I I do want to say maybe this is my question to you and to Liz. Oh, Liz, Liz is having an experience of some sort. I think I found a little tiny biography on Deborah Chiu. She, it has this really cute picture of her too. Look how curly her hair is. So cute. She looks really nice. Yeah, I'd really like to talk to her. It says Deborah began her publishing career at Simon and Schuster, where she was editor in chief of Cornerstone Books. Oh wow! She wow. has she has cool. been a freelance collaborator, editorial consultant, and writer for over twenty five years. She has edited, authored, and co-authored many projects, including sixteen fiction and nonfiction books. Hmm. She can be reached at debrachiel at gmail.com. Wow! We certainly, shoot her a little email and say, "Dear Deborah, thank you so much for your contributions." Hundred and ten percent. I have so many questions. I mean, I would love. <laughs> I, I, you know, I've been shamelessly reaching out to these authors on Twitter, and I, I would. She's not on there, but I uh, maybe I'll ask her to do Die Hard do with it. a Vengeance with us. <laughs> that would be so Please. fun. And then we can ask her more about Great Expectations and what yeah. that experience was like for her. No, no, I get it. Samuel L. Jackson. Sounds cool. But so, in Great Expectations, <laughs> you're just totally... About the book, how much... The more we read of these, I am curious. Like, sometimes you can really feel that you're like, well, this person was writing for this actor. Do you get a mm-hmm. sense of that in her novelization at all? They're like, ah, yes, this is Ethan Hawke, or is it totally its own beast? It's true. You wonder when she got it in the script development process, if he had even been hired. I mean, it always, you know, Andrew talks about he's reaching out to these authors. We co-manage the Twitter account. I see all these messages. It just warms my heart that not all of them work. Did you see all the people that didn't respond to me the other day? I really spammed a bunch of uh, yeah, people the I mean, other day. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I, it does it does bring some good uh, warmth to my heart that not all these people were killed by bees. Like <laughs> what? The the author of Gremlins was hosting a bunch of people at his home, and then a bee stung him, and he was allergic, and he died in front of all his friends. What? Didn't someone ask me a question about Deborah Chiel or something? Did we? <laughs> didn't didn't that- somebody ask me about? Didn't somebody ask me about uh, what what a character or something or someone who hadn't read the book? Did I misremember that? I think I asked, do you get a sense from the novel that you are oh. watching Ethan Hawke? Yes. Okay. So no, I think that if I, I think that if I had read the novel first, which I didn't do this time, I think that I would have not had any faces to put to this. Um, but given that I watched the movie first, I could. See how everything Jimmy was saying was sort of in an Ethan Hawke cadence, even with lines that weren't in the movie. Mm. So, so yeah. Uh, and and uh, I would say the Estella character, totally unrecognizable. Not to say that it was different than the Gwyneth Paltrow performance, but there's not there was nothing Paltronian about it. And there isn't a point where the author says, like, yes, Estella, so tall, so blonde, so... Long-legged. <laughs> I think, I mean, they. she does talk about her features, Not maybe not all at once. I think blonde comes up a lot. Um, but other than that, it's it's just normal lust stuff, where he's just like, she's got thighs and I can see them. Ooh, <laughs> also, probably one of my favorite lines from both, well, my favorite line from the book is, you smell like horse shit. But my favorite line from the movie was just like, that's your boob. 
<laughs> that I part, made a note of that line. That what's this? That it's your boob. So... It's my heart. I was like, that was wild. When he does it the other way, I expected her to go. Your boob. I was waiting for it. <laughs> I was waiting for that moment, and I was so disappointed. Whenever so disappointed. Uh, I was so disappointed that she didn't say your boob. <laughs> me too. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god uh can i i just want to hit a couple things but obviously we're, we're sort of we're no we're avoiding this we're book. sort of stop we're sort of uh you know wrapping up a little bit I, I i just want to hit a couple things i really liked in the book first off page 39 just a a little descriptive paragraph i thought i thought deborah really did a great job with which is um she he's describing uh the ethan hawks character is describing the the mansion that um that uh, Estella and uh, Ms. Dinsmore live in, which is basically, for anyone who hasn't seen the movie, is like this lavish, immense mansion, but that has just fallen into total disarray. Like, no one is is doing any upkeep on it. Very great gardens. Uh, Whatever that is, I agree. Um, And uh, so she says, she being Deborah, says, a very wealthy person must have given a party years earlier and forgotten to clean up the mess. Clouds of flies buzzed in the warm, still air. The place reeked of rot and neglect. Nature as a damp, humid corpse. And I was like, you know what, Deborah? Good paragraph. <laughs> I feel like Deborah's hair would have like really curled in that mansion. Yeah, I also feel like she definitely has been to Sarasota because, de- you know, dead corpse is definitely how I would sort of describe the weather in general. Um, and the ground just very swampy <laughs> i feel like dead cor- corpses are swampy by nature like they got a lot of bacteria growing on them and stuff mm-hmm. there was one uh from the book that stood out for for me where he uh described um oh god mrs dinsmore's hands like the skin on her hands was like that of butterfly wings and i was like oh that's really like how pretty but kind of haunting and kind of like I don't know, but I really liked that. That stood out to me. Um, that yeah, that is awesome. Here's another one. Uh, this is when he's talking to Dinsmore, and it says, "Yet she'd also had a sadness about her, and he'd felt that deep inside she was very, very angry. He felt the anger somehow had to do with him, which didn't make sense since they'd never met before. And when I read this, I wrote down, "This is what my Catholic guilt feels like." I'm just looking at my notes here. I like the part on page 90 where he says he can't look at um, Estella without getting a heart on. I thought that was, weird. I thought that was weirdly crass for what? the for a book that was like trying to be romantic. Um, I mean, that whole drawing sequence is oh. super horny. It's mostly boob. It's a lo- it's like they're th- he's throwing down pieces of art and it's boobs and boobs and boobs and boobs. It's like there's a couple of her face. Aggressive nipple. Yes. There's a moment where he draws an aggressive nipple. <laughs> Anybody who's seen in the, the book or in, in the, the film, film, it's just. Whoosh, in, it's like, <laughs> it's about this nipple. Is it the angles? It's of the, the way in which he draws it, and yes, also the angles of yes said nipple. There's yes. also a point where he's like outlining an areola, and it's like like a real aggressive <laughs> circle. And then he like yeah. uses his finger at one point to be like. <laughs> <laughs> He's drawing her, but he clearly wants to be having sex with her. Yeah. He's making no, love I, to his Hannah, art. Hannah, 
Don't Could you, you provide don't evidence? Yeah. That seems no. far-fetched. <laughs> All right, this is... It's just the energy I get. <laughs> and these are like... These are really children's drawings of these nude portraits. Boobies. He has an artistic style that is modernist. Mm. Yes. That's a word. That's a polite word. Uh, but Hank Azaria shows up and he sees him. He's like, wow, you're really good. And, and then he still says, you're, but you're, do you charge by the inch or do you charge by the time? Yeah, I couldn't tell if he's like, actually is like, oh, I don't know, Art, you're good. Or is like, I've never seen Gwyneth Paltrow naked. <laughs> so I'm assuming this is what she looks like. Yeah. That that by the inch or by the time thing is weird because it's a... Was that a sex joke? Yeah, yeah for sure. That. But it's also it's a also valid question. To art. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's a valid question if you're paying, right? But, and I just thought it was weird that this like... For art or for sex? For art. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to... Uh, anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, if you're paying for art, it makes sense to be like, am I paying by the amount of time it takes or by the size of the painting, right? That's not a very artistic way to look at art okay. or value art. It's, that's like sort of like, oh, I'm going to hang it on my wall and my wall is six feet high, so will it fit? As opposed to like, it's inherently beautiful. Like the second time Hank Azaria makes that joke and Gwyneth Paltrow like emerges out of the crowd and is like, by its beauty. Like that's how you're supposed to judge art. Interesting. I, I, I guess <laughs> I misinterpreted that as just like, a valid thing to ask when you're <laughs> paying. And so I thought that it was the equivalent of like, uh, you know, somebody being like, oh, like how much is it going to be to detail my car? And the person detailing your car being like, <laughs> that just ruined me. <laughs> <laughs> I was I so mean, confused. The Hank Azaria <laughs> character says it the first time to devalue Ethan Hawke as a human being. To be like, you're not really an artist. No one's ever heard of you. No one's ever seen your right. stuff. You're probably just like an amateur. Oh, this reminds me of something I'm so glad I almost forgot to talk about. As For those of you who only watch the movie, does the name Erica Thrall mean anything to you? No. Uh, yeah, because it's the lady from Rocky Horror. Yeah. But it's a fictional person. Yeah. Is Erica. Yeah. Okay, sure. So in the book... It's made very explicit that Erica Thrall is the person who owns this place that Ethan Hawke is going to have his show, right? And so, ostensibly, she reaches out to him and is like, I really want to do a show of yours. And and he's like, I guess maybe I sent her, you know, slides of my paintings years ago because I was doing that a bunch. And then it turns out, of course, that Lustig is actually setting up everything. And it made me go, what does Erica Thrall think is happening? Did a did an escape convict convict hand her like two hundred thousand dollars and go like pretend to love this guy's paintings? Yeah, probably. And she said okay, and then he makes some paintings that are fine, and she thinks, well, maybe these will sell, and then they do. Back to the same guy. Who cares? She's a gallery owner. Or she's or making commission. He, he does have that book of his drawings from when he was a kid. So maybe he was like, look at these wonderful drawings. I paid so much money for these drawings. You should get this artist. He's in Florida. <laughs> like, and those know, drawings like, are good. More yes. fish paintings, Ethan. More, more fish. More barracuda. More barracuda, less aggressive nipple. 
less aggressive nipple. I think that's the slogan for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for so elegantly singing our theme song just oh, then. You're welcome. All right, Liz. So the way we uh, close <laughs> these episodes out generally is we uh, we talk about recommendations. So having read this novelization, we'll go. Uh, would you recommend this novel? You know, to anyone. That's the, the you don't have to answer yet because I I'm still doing the spiel. But um, would you recommend this novel to anyone? Which would be like the highest praise. Would you recommend it to them? Well, the highest praise would really be. If, would you recommend it to the to them if they hadn't seen the movie or had no relationship with the IP? Like that'd be crazy, right? If you're like this book's so good, anybody should read it. Would you recommend it to someone who loved the movie, which kind of makes sense? Or would you recommend it to no one? I would recommend it to no one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and you can add some closing thoughts if you want, or... (laughs) (laughs) It's not that... I just don't know what its purpose is. Like, I... So, I don't know why you would go and read... A book based on a movie i mean i guess if you're like really in love with the movie i guess if you're like really in love with the movie Personal because attack. you know like i mean i read adaptations as a kid of like of movies i liked because you know we needed the ar points and i wanted to get smelly erasers and stuff so like elaborate please what's an uh, ar point um, advanced reading points. Uh, mm. There was a system when I was in elementary school where if you read a certain amount of pages, you got certain points. And those points added up to goodies, kind of like a Chuck E. Cheese sort of situation, but you're reading books to get to those prizes instead of games. Hannah, you can't exactly answer the question, but would you recommend this movie to people? No. I really, really wanted to like it, and then it couldn't stick the landing. And mm-hmm. given the conversation, I'm not going to read the novelization. Right. So. Andrew, how'd you feel about the movie? You know, I haven't seen all of Quran's filmography, you know, like Prisoner of Azkaban, like Roma. So I was sort of excited, you know, maybe this will have a bit of his flair. And honestly, even in that sense, I wasn't that excited by it. Uh, so I probably would not recommend this unless you're watching his entire filmography because it just it did nothing for me it did not make me want to read the original great expectations not even read the wikipedia page it did not make me want to read the novelization of this book it just was sort of just like all right i'm watching a movie it's not the best ethan hawk it's not the best best Gwyneth paltrow it's not the best for own like you can skip it it's not the best yeah. chris cooper no it's pretty good though. He's the best part of the movie. I'm willing. He's to say the best that. part, but I don't even think I would put this top five, Cooper. <laughs> I mean, we I didn't even talk about watching the movie for how good he is. Like, you yes. can get an equally good Chris Cooper performance somewhere else without having to sit through aggressive nipples. It's it's very. Uh, we were talking about adaptation earlier. It is like adaptation performance adjacent, with him with him playing like a like a nature man, you know. Yeah. Um, okay, I'll answer the question now. <laughs> so, as far <laughs> as the movie goes, uh, I loved the first scene. <laughs> it grabbed me by the face and pulled me in. <laughs> um, but but everything involving the romance was so broadly sketched. It was like 
it was like it it knew I had seen romantic films before, and it's just said, you know, the beats were running through those, uh, and I felt that the ending of the romance was totally tacked on, and I felt that the ending of the Lustig plot, the escaped convict, existed in a fantasy realm. So I would not recommend the movie, and I think, to Deborah's credit, I think that she is making a, a book that is purely of the movie. I mean, given this task of writing the novelization of Great Expectations... She could have drawn upon her experience primarily as an editor of Great Expectations, and she could have made essentially just an abridged version of it. She truly made uh, a novelization of the 1998 film Great Expectations and everything that entails, and it is a diseased film. <laughs> I wish it was crazier. If the whole film was as like manic and wild as like the end part with De Niro or the beginning part with De Niro, I think I really could have gotten into it. But totally, just, I agree. I agree. We could be reevaluating this movie. On I one thought it was if it was that. I crazy. thought it was funny that the three of us, Hannah, Andrew, and I, that we all independently rated it two stars on Letterboxd. <laughs> like, not only did we think it was bad, but we thought it was the exact same amount of bad. For most of the movie, I was like three star movie, and then yeah. the ending, I was like, nope. <laughs> no, that thing's not. a that thing's a four out of ten. If there ever was one, <laughs> yeah. and that's to say that Andrew, I don't know how you know I haven't looked at it enough. Andrew and I have very op- different opinions of what like a three star, a four star, a five star movie is. So for us both to be like, that's a two yeah. star movie, despite our different recommendation styles, says a movie has to be pretty disappointing for me to give it two stars. I'm a solid three star on almost everything if I like it at all. Yeah. I'm very generous and I couldn't muster it for this one. I also think Ethan Hawke did a really good job of carrying most of the story through his performance too. Like I will say he plays the part of the like artist pining after a lady like richer than him very well. And, And De Niro does his part very well. And I think that's why those two parts were like the most compelling parts of the movie was just because it just fit them so well and I think they worked together well their dynamic was good once it wasn't the kid and De Niro too but De Niro's just good about himself but like you know what I mean like it's something there was something more there was something that was more of a love story about those two characters than the actual love story component of this movie. Like, I was more like, oh, he just told him why he died. Like, this was something that this man carried with him through his whole life. That's actually hitting me right now. That actually hit me. Like, so for that, I think I would probably, I don't know, I might like do like a two and a half sort of situation, two and a half stars, just like for that little, that half moment of like, oh, okay, that was nice. Five out of 10, still an F. Um, <laughs> to our uh, to our devoted and vast fan base, uh, thank you again for listening to our Great Expectations episode. Can I say one more thing about Great Expectations? You may. <laughs> and then literally then we'll be done. But I just want to say, I just want to make it known publicly that in the Dickens novel, Pip's full name is Philip Pirrup. What's the last name? Pirrup. P-I-R-R-I-P. Philip Pirrup. He's a pit. I hate that. (laughs) Philip (laughs) Pirrup. Yeah, I don't know how that didn't translate to uh, (laughs) him. 
the three the three names thing is is absolutely crazy to me um okay uh two are enraptured and boundless listeners <laughs> so patient so kind thank you so patient so kind so handsome or beautiful depending not on how you identify but how you like to be complimented <laughs> Thank you for uh, listening to our Great Expectations episode. We will be back next week with another page-to-screen, back-to-page adaptation of uh, the 2020 film Bloodshot. Uh, And, of course, as we all learn from Great Expectations, uh, if you love someone, but they toy with you and do not love you back, find something better. Because even if you end up with them in the end, and even if you die intertwined with them in a loving embrace you will die alone in the prison of your own body good night Mm -hmm.